So if you want to follow along in your Bible, we'll be in Exodus 19. The scriptures, I believe, will also be up here on the screens. And so as we talk about the law, I wanted to uh, bring a couple of odd laws in the United States to your attention. First one is, did you know that in Alaska, it is illegal to get drunk in a bar? Now, being drunk, I'm not condoning it. It's not a good thing, okay? As a Christian, I know it's not good to overexcess in alcohol. But if you were going to get drunk, a bar would be one place that it would, might make sense for you to go. Um, second, in Arkansas, at one point, it was illegal for a female teacher who had a bob haircut to get a raise. <laughs> at one point. Uh, in Vail, up there in the mountains, it is illegal for you to store your junk too close to someone else. So think about these laws. Probably your, your head is spinning right now and you're trying to figure out, well, why is that law put into place? What is happening with that? Well, in, in Alaska, they actually have a big alcoholism problem. So they're putting some barriers in place, hopefully to help that out. Um, in, in Arkansas, I believe that law was put into place somewhere around the 1920s when, when women were being rebellious and getting boyish bobbed haircuts. And Arkansas people didn't want that kind of a woman teaching their children. Thankfully, things have changed and gotten a little bit better nowadays. Um, and what do you know about Vail? I couldn't hear exactly what you said, but probably some, some stereotype up by, if you're from Vail, I, am up, I apologize, but the stereotype of people in Vail is that it's kind of posh, a little bit more, more wealthy and affluent. And so it would make sense that, yeah, they, as a city, do not want junk to be stored like outside, get that in your house or, or whatever. So hopefully you can see that with each of these laws, there is something behind it that helps make sense of why it was maybe put into place. But when we come to the Old Testament law, all these rules and guidelines that have been set up, do you try to figure out the same context behind those laws? Or do you read them and you say, how regressive, how barbaric, that's awful, I can't follow a God like that. I can't follow a God that seems to allow slavery. That's ridiculous. Well, what I wanna help us understand today is some of the context behind these laws. Now, there's no possible way that I could explain every law to you. There's over 600 of them written in the first five books of the Bible. There's no way that we, that we can even give nuance to each of them. And scholars have been debating about what the nuances are for a long time. But I, I want to give a vast overview of what this is. We're also going to look at the New Testament. How does Jesus interpret all of these commands and all these laws? So to begin, we're going to look at the greater story, which is where we are in our story from Genesis to Revelation. And where we are today is in Exodus 19. So some context of what's been going on is that, if you've been with us, the Israelites have been rescued out of slavery in Egypt. They have been rescued through the Red Sea. Uh, they've seen the power of God at work through the ten plagues, through all that stuff that happened to the, to the Egyptians. And also, he, he destroyed the uh, Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Last week, Pete told us the story about how they got hungry, and so God fed them with manna. And today, here we are in Exodus 19, and Israel is on their way to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was the place back in Exodus 3 where Moses encountered God in the burning bush. There it's called Horeb, and he would say, Moses, once my people are free, you're going to lead them back here, and they're going to worship me. And now here we go. This is what is going on here in, in Exodus 19. And here we see that God wants to enter into a relationship or a covenant or a partnership. Those are all similar words that could be used to describe the thing that what God wants to do with Israel, enter into a partnership. God is going to give them the law so that they can hold up their end of the bargain. 
That's what the law is going to do. So let's read. Exodus 19, 1 through 8 is our first passage here. On the third new moon, this is the third month, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be to me a treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So a couple things to draw out here as we're headed towards thinking about what the law is. First of all, is that God reminds them of his mighty acts. It's been three months They might need a refresher course, and so he does. You've seen what I did to Egypt. You saw what I did to the gods. You saw what I did to the army, and this is the foundation of this relationship they're going to enter into because of what God has done, not because of what Israel had done. Second is that Israel then agreed. We see in verse 8, all that you have said, we will do. They agreed to it. Okay, God, we're, we're in. Let's go ahead and do this. And now here's the vision statement for what the rest of the Old Testament is supposed to be about. That the Israelites, this is in verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's the vision statement for what this covenant would be. Now what does a priest do? If you think about a priest, a priest is someone who who is kind of a go-between between the divine and the non-divine humans. So it's someone who stands in, in, in the way of, of, of those two and mediates the presence of God to the people. So if you're an ancient Near East person and you want to go worship this foreign God, you're going to go to the temple where you worship that God and you're going to talk to the priest and he or she is going to explain to you what you need to do in order to worship that God. And this is Israel's vision statement. They are to be priests for Yahweh to the rest of the world. That is the vision statement. That is what they are called to be. Right now, I am doing some kind of priestly role to you. That, that I, I'm, I've been praying and asking God, what do you want me to say to the church this morning? And so it's kind of a mediating role. But at the same time, for all of us who believe in Jesus, he is our high priest. You don't need a pastor or a priest. Jesus is the high priest. So it's one way that this has shifted, that, that Israel was supposed to play this role that Jesus came later and fulfilled. Let's go ahead and go read uh, verses 9 through 13. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak to you, and may also believe you forever. So God's going to come, he's going to speak, and all of Israel's going to hear. That's crazy. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Do not, or take care, not go 
not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So I have a cat. I have two cats, but one of the cats' name is Roman. He's a black cat, and uh, just to give you a mental picture, he's kind of small, and he likes to go outside, but Karina and I do not want him to go outside. And so I've been trying to behaviorally condition him for his entire life since we've had him. Behavioral conditioning is that thing that Pavlov did with the dogs, right? Feed them, and then they salivate. Uh, feed them, and then ring a bell, and then take away the food, but still ring the bell, and they salivate. Okay, that's behavioral conditioning. Um, and I have a green squirt bottle that shoots a stream, a jet of water, about 15 feet. It's a pretty good tool that I, I squirt Roman when he's being a dunce, because he is very much a dunce. And so I, I open the screen door, because on a nice day, I want to have the screen door open, so, so I and Evangeline and Karina can go in and out at will. Um, but Roman, inevitably, gets curious. He comes over, and he just sits right at the threshold. He knows he's not supposed to go out. He knows this. But he sits there, and, and then I go out with my book or homework, whatever, and sit down and have my, my eye on the door, in the corner of my eye. And inevitably, he, gets, he can't handle it anymore. He stands up when he thinks he can get away with it, and it's the slowest move ever. He reaches out, and he touches the threshold. And as soon as he does, I got that water bottle, and I, I squirt him and then chase him to the house and try and instill a bit of fear in him. Do you think God is like this in this passage? Is God just waiting for an Israelite to step foot on that mountain and a caca, dead? That's not what's happening here, my friends. God is not vindictive, he's not wrathful, he's not angry. And I know some of us here, some of you listening to this, have heard this message that you are a sinner and that God is angry at you and he's sending a lightning bolt directly for you because you deserve to die. But luckily, Jesus stepped in, absorbed that punishment that you deserve and therefore you can go to heaven someday instead of hell. This is a gospel message I know has been preached. But God's default position is not wrath. It is not anger at you. He loves you. We just sang about that. Reckless love. It's a reckless love that that tears down hedges, will, will kick down doors, and pursue you. Hopefully, one day, when you will realize it and turn around and enter into this relationship with him because he loves you. What's happening here on this mountain is that God is actually setting up protection for their lives because God is holy. A holy God, the best illustration I can come up with is that God is like the sun. His holiness radiates out from him. His power is emanating from him so intensely that if an unholy being like the Israelites or like you and I stand in his presence, you would not survive. In fact, there's a story in Leviticus of Aaron's sons. Aaron became the high priest later on in the story. He had sons who thought, well, we don't need all these commands. We can just go into the temple. And they do that, and fire from God's presence comes out and actually consumes them because they approached God in an unholy manner. In fact, what the entire book of Leviticus is about, and we're going to get to that here in a minute, the entire book of of Leviticus is about how you can approach God. And that is a, a crazy amount of grace, which I will explain to you momentarily because we have to go on to the next and last passage here starting in chapter 19, verse 16. So God is about to come down to the mountain. This is revolutionary. Let's read it. On the morning of the third day, 
There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses, called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. My friends, this is revolutionary, and here's why. Gods in the ancient Near East were far away. They were indifferent towards human suffering. They were... They really didn't care what happened to the humans, and they were kind of temperamental, but they were far away. They did not come down to you. And that is what we read Yahweh doing in this moment. If you drive south on any of these streets here in southwest Denver, like Santa Fe or Federal Sheridan Wadsworth, on a good clear day at the top of the hill where we are here in Harvey Park, you can see Pikes Peak. Have you ever thought about God and his presence coming to dwell on that mountain? Like when you go out and you drive home, if you go south, I think today's clear, you're going to see it. Imagine if God was right there. Like you could point to the world and say, that's the God we worship. That volcano, that earthquake, that um, incredible whole spinning cloud of, of thunder, that is the power of God that we worship. And you as an Israelite had just seen what God did back in Egypt. He decimated the Egyptian gods through the plagues. He decimated the most powerful army on the planet with nature in the Red Sea. This God then allowed you, gave you sustenance to survive for a three-month journey to this mountain, and your God is right there. This is revolutionary. As an Israelite, you're thinking, sign me up. I'm in. I don't want to be on that God's bad side, but I know that he loves me and he wants to now join with me for, for this covenant, for this partnership to go and be his representatives to the world. That doesn't happen in the ancient Near East. So the Old Testament law that God then is about to give to the Israelites, the Old Testament law is a revolutionary and progressive covenant. It is a revolutionary and progressive covenant that reveals the character and will of God to the world. That's what I have been explaining to you this whole time. The Old Testament law is a revolutionary and progressive covenant that reveals the character of God to the world. Now, from Exodus 19, the narrative grinds to a halt as God outlines how Israel is going to become this kingdom of priests. Remember that grace came first. God came to the Israelites and rescued them through, through no fault of their own. Drew did a fantastic job a couple weeks ago of explaining how that worked in the Red Sea crossing. The Israelites did nothing. God didn't give them the law, say, obey, and then he saved them. That's not how it works. He gave them grace through no merit or work of their own, only because of his own faithfulness, to the, the ancestors of the Israelite people, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is a grace-filled law that he will then uh, give to the people. Now, Drew next week is going to talk about length, or talk at length about the Ten Commandments, uh, which comes up next in Exodus 20. So um, these are the first things that God says, and so I'll, I'll just say this in passing as I let Drew take care of most of the, the work on, on Ten Commandments. The first four commandments of the Ten 
are essentially how an Israelite can be in relationship with God. Like, how are you supposed to worship me, right? How are you supposed to love God? The next six are all about the horizontal relationship. How am I, as an Israelite, going to relate and love my neighbors? Hang on. Love God, love my neighbor? Where have I heard that before? It's Jesus. In case you didn't know. And again, we're, we're going to get there. So the Ten Commandments are, are, are about love God and love others, and they also seem to apply universally through all human time. But there's something about these commandments, like for, for a worshiper of God, yeah, it's good that I worship him alone, and also I don't like covet my neighbor's stuff or steal or lie. Or, that's generally accepted by most societies in the world that that is, is a good thing. So they, they seem to be universally applicable, but what comes next are the rest of the 600 commands. And some of them can be kind of weird for us to actually look at and, and visualize and understand what's going on. Because what comes next is some laws about slavery, about oxen safety. If your ox does something or if you borrow an ox and it dies, what are you supposed to do? Do any of you have oxen? <laughs> I grew up with cows, but not oxen. Does that apply to cows? You see, this all gets really, really complicated because it's so highly, highly contextual. And it can seem regressive and barbaric, right? Slavery is wrong, but there's slavery in the Bible. But I'm going to give you an example. Again, just one, because we have to dip our toe in and then quickly move on. One example of how the law is progressive and revolutionary. And that comes with a law in Exodus 21, 23 through 25, which you've probably heard of. It's called an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this law was not new to the ancient Israelites. It was not new to the Mosaic law code. In fact, an ancient king of Babylon, his name was Hammurabi, had this in his law code that came about 400 or 300 years earlier, plus or minus a, dec- a century or so. We actually have Hammurabi's law code. There, there's a stone pillar about this tall, seven feet tall. It's black, and there are inscribed all this ancient language on it, and there's a scene of Hammurabi receiving this law code from the sun god Shemesh. And they're on the same level as though Hammurabi is a god along with Shemesh. And we can see how that applies here because Moses is getting this law code from Yahweh, but Moses is by no means equal with Yahweh. So it's already kind of changing the idea of what your national ruler was. But also this eye for eye, tooth for tooth thing was present in Hammurabi's law code. But it all revolved around social classes, like middle class, low class, high class. And it was an eye for an eye if you were of the same class. Like if you're a middle class person and, and you, uh, you destroyed the eye of a slave, then you could just pay money for that slave's eye. But if you did it with someone who was equal with you, then you also had to lose your eye. The Mosaic Law Code, if you destroyed the eye of a slave, that slave was to be set free. And that's why it's revolutionary. What it's doing is it's stretching the culture towards God's ideal, but if you stretch a culture too far, it's going to break. You have to have something that that everyone can identify with and say, no, here's where we're going to go. If, If you hurt a slave... It's not good. They should be set free. So that is one reason that the law code is revolutionary. But they're also highly contextual. There are two laws, one in Exodus, one in Deuteronomy, that actually refer to this exact same thing, and it's how to prepare the Passover lamb. So we talked about the Passover a couple weeks ago, and in Exodus 12, um, 8 and 9, they're commanded to roast it with fire. Do not boil it. Now in Deuteronomy, later on, it says, boil it. 
which implies do not roast it. So if you're preparing the Passover lamb, am I supposed to boil it or not? Which one is it? Think about the context of those two laws. In Exodus, this was before the Passover when they were about to flee Egypt and go into the wilderness. In the wilderness, you essentially just have like a campfire and you you can't really set up a permanent cooking station like you could or like you even had in Exodus. And so you roasted it over your campfire. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is a reinterpretation of the laws that they've already received and how they're going to execute those when they're in the promised land, when they have permanent dwellings. And so in this case, you can set up your permanent cooking station and you can boil the lamb, which was the normal way to eat meat. It was the most safest to get all the blood and the bacteria out of it, make sure it's heated all the way through. So these laws are highly contextual, revolutionary, progressive, trying to get slaves free, elevated women to a crazy high status that was never seen before in the ancient Near East. But it's also highly contextual to help Israel understand how they can worship their God within their own context and how they're going to be this kingdom of priests. So, laws are highly contextual. So what does that mean for us? Like, why are they even in our Bible? Why, what value do they have for us? Well, actually, Jesus and the rabbis of his day asked the exact same question because they were kind of struggling with the same thing that you and I might ask. What, what's the point of all this? In fact, those rabbis realized that the Bible itself seems to start to reduce the 600 plus laws into a smaller subset that seems to be like a higher principle. Like if I would tell you, uh, don't uh, go to, to, to someone's car and bash the window in and take their phone out of it, and, and don't go to someone's, uh, someone's house and break in and, and take their fridge, I don't know. What's the principle behind those two? Don't steal. Okay, so from one principle, don't steal, you can come up with a lot of different applications for how to actually execute that law. So the Bible itself does this. David, in Psalm 15, reduced it to 11. Micah 6.8 reduces it down to 3. And Habakkuk 2.4 actually brings it down to 1, which is, the righteous one shall live by faith. And Paul quotes that in his book to the Romans. He quotes that one law. Jesus enters into this very debate When he's asked, teacher, what's the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then he adds, the second one is like it, love your neighbor. We've heard that before. That is the basis. The Ten Commandments are the first part of the law that we receive. And those principles, Jesus takes and gives it to us as the New Testament church. Now, you might also be saying, yeah, so we don't follow those Old Testament laws, really contextual. Yeah, it was good back then, but we have new stuff now. So we follow the New Testament law. Well, did you know that Paul gave commands to the New Testament churches? When was the last time you greeted someone with a holy kiss? Pre-COVID? Probably. I, I, don't, I, I, have, I actually wasn't here at Forefront pre-COVID, so I don't know what y'all did, but we didn't back, back in Kansas. We didn't greet each other with a holy kiss, even pre-COVID. That's not something we follow. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 says that men shall worship with their heads uncovered and women shall worship with their heads covered. I see a couple people with hats in here. I'm not going to call you out. (laughs) But did we we follow that? Like when when the music started, did we take our heads off? Did we walk into church and take our hats off? No. And and if we didn't, that's not a big deal, right? Because we, we don't... Follow this. Now, men t- generally take off their hats at, at a ball game and the national anthem is played, but is that the same as here in church? You see, it's up to us 
how to figure out how we're going to live out these two commands that Jesus gave. These two commands, to love God and love others, is the same, those are the same commands that we have, and it's the same context that God gave all of those commands to help the Israelites figure out how they were going to be God's representatives to the world. It's the same thing, we just have different contexts, very different contexts. Now, I want to return to, to the Israelite context and talk about what may seem like the most regressive part of the law, and that is the book of Leviticus. But to do that, I, I want to um, explain. Uh, it, it's a fictional story, but there is some truth to it. It has kind of been researched, um, and I've heard it from a couple different places, but I'm putting it in my own words for this context. So uh, imagine yourself as an ancient, ancient, ancient person, person, caveman, cavewoman, right? Outside of your cave, there's a plant. And this plant produces food for you. And you, at some point, you understand that you are, are, um, you're dependent on the success of this plant. But then you also realize that this plant and its success are, are, are driven by this ball of fire that travels across the sky. Or, or, or this water that falls from the sky. And if that ball of fire burns too hot, the plant shrivels up. If the water falls too much, the plant might be washed away. But if they're just right... This plant produces an abundance of food for you. So you're dependent on this plant, which is dependent on forces outside of its control. Over time, you start to to name these forces, and it's human nature to try and figure out, how am I going to control these forces? There must be something behind it that's controlling it, some, some spiritual force that I can interact with and appease and hopefully get on its good side. And so these rituals develop where, um, okay, if I'm going to try and appease this God that gave me this crop, well, I should take some of this crop and, and try and give it to this God to show how thankful I am. Give it to the spiritual force. So I'm going to find the tallest mountain or highest hill, wherever we are, go up. I'll build a little altar because the gods are up there. Right, that's where the rain comes from, that's where the ball of fire is. And I'll have to go up higher, and then I'm going to put it on, on this platform, this altar, burn it, so that the smoke wafts up and hopefully the gods smell it and know how much that I appreciate what they have done for me. The problem is, though, next year, maybe you had an abundance of crop, and so you're like, oh man, I need to go and offer more because I need to show how more thankful I I am. Then the next year, maybe you had a drought, and, and you hardly produced any crop. But can you offer less than you did last year? Because obviously that spiritual force wasn't happy with me. So I've got to go offer more. The answer to abundance and deprivation in that system is more. More, more, more. Give that God more, more, and more. And you have no idea ever if you're really going to satisfy and get that God on your side. Then imagine one day you hear about this group of people whose God has actually come down to them and told them exactly what to do in order to be on his good side. And he he came to them, not because of what they had done, but because of what he wanted to do with them. And he graciously gave them all these guidelines and these rules of how to be in a right relationship with God. That's revolutionary. And then you hear that they have no social classes and and that their slaves are being set free. That's progressive. That law is progressive and revolutionary. And imagine if you're a Canaanite person who's never heard from your God, Baal or Asherah, but you're trying to worship them and they're headed, that group of people is headed your way with their God in a cloud with them. 
one of two things would happen. You would either just like join them, like Rahab did, or you would melt away in fear because there's no way that I can survive this. And so you go and plead with your gods. You are for more, more, and more, and more, but nothing happens, and these people come in, and that's where we get the book of Joshua. These people are on the precipice of entering your land, and, and something is going to happen because this God is powerful, and he's gracious to these people. Like, can I get in? Hopefully that would be our reaction, right? I, I want some of that. Sign me up. I want in. Now, what happened then with this whole Levitical sacrificial system is when God, when God came down to his people and he dwelt in that tabernacle, in that little tent that they set up, the end of Exodus 40, right before Leviticus, actually says that nobody could go in. Like Moses couldn't even go into that tabernacle because he wasn't holy enough. The sun... God's presence and glory and radiance was in there and nobody could go in. And then we start Leviticus and it explains what kind of rituals you can go through, what you can do in order to be right with this God. Here's the, you can offer this sacrifice, you can take this bath. And a lot of it has to do with, with how uh, clean you are from, uh, you can't touch death, it has to be all about life. Right? So there's so much that I want to say about Leviticus. Um, I, I'd encourage you to go out and check, check out some other sources. The Bible Project right now has podcasts that are talking about Leviticus, and it's going to be a great resource. They also have some good videos. So if you're interested in learning more about that whole sacrificial system, feel free to check that out. Talk to me, and, and we can talk about that as well. But the thing is, over time, they had set this whole thing up, and then finally... Once they're in the temple, they've built it. Solomon built the majestic temple. God is on their side. God is blessing the Israelites. And the world can see how wonderful and amazing Yahweh is. And you have people coming from all corners of the globe to pay tribute to him. Well, then humans kind of mess it up. There's a civil war in Israel. And then eventually, Babylon comes in and actually destroys and decimates Israel. The presence of God leaves his people and never returns again. The Jewish people still today are waiting for a temple to be built in Jerusalem and the presence of God to come back. That's what they're waiting for. But we're, as Christians, not sure if that's going to happen. It might. There's some really cryptic stuff in the Bible about that. I don't know. A lot of people say they know. They don't. So the prophets, during that time of exile, were like, or even, even when, when they were under threat of, of uh, Babylon coming in and destroying them, they were starting to prophesy things like, is this really working? Is this whole sacrificial system actually working? Like, I as a prophet am seeing the sins of Israel, and it's not getting any better. In fact, we're headed towards destruction. And that's what the prophets did. They stood in the way of, of, of the people and told them, stop. God is that way. Turn around and go that way. Stop sinning. But the power seemed to be having this hold over the Israelites is as though something was missing. There was something about, about the power of sin that is actually inadequate to change a human heart. The sacrificial system could not actually change anyone's hearts. But with Jesus, something was radically changed. Another revolutionary and progressive thing happened. And the book of Hebrews is tapping into this. So whoever the writer is, he or she in Hebrews, uh, talks about the Levitical law and is explaining what is going on now after Jesus. What, what was Leviticus about? And then what are we supposed to do in light of this? So here's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away 
sins. So the prophets, like Isaiah, had already started to ask this question, like, can, can the blood of bulls and goats really take away sins? And no, he, he writes in Isaiah 1 verse 11 that God says he does not delight in the blood of bulls and goats or the fat of rams. He does not delight in this. But God, you had set that up for us, so what's something is missing? And the priests had to offer these sacrifices daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, and they could not actually change anything about the human heart. They were always standing. There was always work to do. So when Christ comes in here, and then he sits down, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus sat down. That's a big deal for a priest. There was always work to do, animals to be sacrificed. But Jesus sacrificed himself and sat down, and then he wanted to kick up his feet, but he had to wait. Verse 13 says, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. By offering a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Jesus sacrifices himself, and then he sits down at the right hand of God, and he waits. He wants to crush his enemies, be made a footstool for the feet. He wants to crush the serpent from Genesis 3, but he can't yet. He's waiting for something. What is he waiting for? The resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. This thing that had died, Jesus who had died, is now alive, and he goes out and talks to his people again and says, just wait a little bit. I'm going to send you the same power that conquered the grave and the same power that allowed me to crush evil and death. That same power is going to come to you. Today's Pentecost, right? Today, in the liturgical church calendar, is the day that we celebrate the Holy Spirit coming into the, the humans and, and those who have put faith in him. And that's the same power that Jesus gave to the people once he was resurrected. The same power that he had that crushed that power. He, he, he crushed the power because that was the very thing that could not change anyone's life, could not actually change an Israelite's heart. So my fellow Jesus follower, if you're in here this morning, are you in this cycle of sin, shame, grief, guilt, repentance, Sin, shame, guilt, grief, dependence. Are you stuck in this cycle that you really can't get out of? You don't have to live like this. Jesus offers the way out. Because that very thing that the Israelites were missing, God has now given you. The Old Testament prophets prophesied that God would pour out his spirit on the, laws, on, on the people's hearts. And that's what we see next in, the, in this passage here. Hebrews 15 says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Do you keep coming back to the altar and trying to sacrifice something for your sin? You don't have to live like this. You don't. You don't have to live like this. God has provided the way out. The power of the Holy Spirit can help you stop sinning and be a kingdom of priests. You can be a priest to the nation to, to show the world who our God really is. If you're a non-Christian in here, or you, you might consider yourself, I'm not sure what I believe, or someone drug you here this morning, 
I want to encourage you to think about this God, the same God who came down to that mountain, who rescued the Israelites, is here, and he is pursuing you because of his love. He's not angry at you. He wants for you to turn around and come into him and, and, and partner with his people to represent him to this world. This is the God you're looking for. So my friends, I will end with the same thing that we hear on this uh, video we play for the Sermon Bumper every single time. And it applies universally to all of us, whether you're a Jesus follower or not. Will you let the God of the Israelites, who rescued them out of slavery, will you let him rescue you? Let's pray.